630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. All right, coming to you live from Hubtown, Edmonton and Toronto. Poised to be officially named hubs by the National Hockey League. Looks like Edmonton will get games all the way through to the Stanley Cup final. Pretty cool. No announcement yet from the National Hockey League, though speculation uh, everywhere. TSN's Bob McKenzie has reported a lot of that, and he is usually right. The players are uh, you know, going through this as well. They're going to vote not just on the return-to-play protocol, but a CBA extension and some other uh, you know, key dates and things like that. And Of course, we'll keep you posted here on 630. Ched, Bob Stoffer has orders now from noon to two. Pretty exciting. Pretty exciting for... Uh, for Edmonton, for everybody with uh, Oilers Entertainment Group who have uh, been putting a lot of work into this bid, and it looks like that hard work will indeed pay off with the NHL coming here. I, I do just want to quickly uh, update. Well, it's not really much of an update, but I mentioned it off the top of the show, and a couple people have texted in about it, and this is about TSN's Dan O'Toole, who uh, is one of the hosts on SC with Jay and Dan every night. On TSN, uh, if you listen, you know I'm, I'm very good friends with Jay Onright. Dan O'Toole has been on the show a few times over the years as well, and he posted a picture of his one-month-old baby named Oakland. Uh, I won't read the whole post again, but part of it is uh, I'm praying that whoever has you is holding you, that whoever has taken you from me is protecting you. Uh, later on, Dan writes, to be clear, Oakland is alive, we think, but we don't know. I have a one-month-old child, and I don't know where she is. And I, I appreciate uh, everybody's concern. I'm concerned as well. I appreciate that, that you're texting me in for more information. Unfortunately, I, I don't have any. Uh, I can only take that that post at face value. I haven't seen any other uh, reports from members of the media uh, or from any police in the area where, where Dan lives. You know, in the middle of the show, obviously, I'm not checking things quite as closely as I would be otherwise, but but I haven't seen anything along those lines. So just hopefully there is a, a, a safe uh, resolution to whatever the situation is. Yeah, but I, I'm aware of it and I appreciate everybody's uh, concern. Sorry, I, I don't really have anything to add to what Dan wrote. So uh, we'll just have to see how this uh, how this evolves in the next few hours, I suppose. 780-496-0063, the number to both call and text. You can always get more on 630ched.com, globalnews.ca. I am pleased to welcome back to the show former PGA Tour golfer, Canadian, of course. It's the one and only Richard Zokel. Richard, you're on with Reed. How have you been, sir? I'm doing good. Good to be back with you. Yeah, it's always great to talk golf with you. Uh, a very unusual time that, that we're going through. Of course, you're at Predator Ridge in BC. How, how have you guys, uh, those two lovely courses, dealt with everything over the last few months? Well, we've first of all, when uh, we were dealt with the situation, I went into lockdown, gosh, I think it was March 15th, and we quickly did that to protect our homeowners and our community. We have around you know, just over 800 homeowners at Predator Ridge right now, and or at the time, and, and we made sure that there was no, the only people that were allowed inside our gate were homeowners, and, and we shut down all services to our guests, and uh, we provided uh, services so our homeowners could um, self-isolate in safety. And then on June 1st, we, uh, with our protocols and what we've done, we have, uh, you know, these plastic dividers when we opened up our golf courses to members only, but June 1st, we opened it up to the public. We found uh, uh, protocols how we would deal with this. So everything is going well. We've um, 
just so you know, I think in the in the interior of BC where Penticton, Kelowna, Vernon, we are, we've only had uh, just over uh, 200 cases. There's only been a new zero people in the hospital. So we are, um, we've taken it very seriously and we've done quite well with it. We, I'm glad to say we're a, we're a safe haven in, uh, in this part of the world. Well, that's good to hear. Sounds like you, you approached everything very responsibly. And, and the great thing about golf is you can get out, you can walk, you can exercise, you can enjoy mm-hmm. the outdoors, and you don't have to be two feet away from somebody. I mean, and the thing about I, I've golfed, you know, since this has been going on, and it, to me, not too much changed because you're usually 10, 15, 20 feet away from, from, from your buddy anyway. So it's a pretty um, – you know, the, the whole nature of golf lends itself to some of the safety measures we need to, to follow anyway. It, it really does. It's natural for this, unfortunately. You, know, you take every other sport, you're either touching a ball and others are touching it or you're touching them in the form of contact. And, and they're in, you know, arenas where people are elbow to elbow to the next person beside them in a contained space. So golf obviously being outside, there's, there's, uh, you know, uh, an, uh, you know, it's easier to to to, to be safe in, outside. Uh, you're, you're, you're distancing. There's no contact. Made sure that you know, no one touched the pin. No one touched the rakes. So it was, um, it was the first one adaptable, at adapting into it. And it, I can see why the PGA Tour now it's one of the first sports back. They're four weeks into it with no spectators. They're about to introduce spectators in a couple of weeks, and uh, it's going to be interesting how they're dealing to see how they're dealing with it. I think they're doing a great job. I, I and there have been some positive tests on the PGA Tour, and and the guys have it's like seems like they've gotten they've withdrawn right away, right, or made sure that they're totally healthy before going back to work. Yeah, the PGA Tour has 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 really organized quite well and to create a bubble, whether they be charter flights or hotels that players and caddies can stay in. And every time they get to the golf course, if they, they get tested before they go on the charter flight, they get tested that week and, and, and they have a, a stipend as well. So if you're in a situation, say you, 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 you're playing in the tournament, you've been cleared because you've tested positive and, and then you test negative or sorry i i I mean you're tested negative for the virus and then you test positive and you're in contention then they will you will get paid uh they they have you withdraw but they're making sure that it's whether it's a player or whether it's a caddy or anyone that has an integral part in the production of of the uh, event they're getting tested and and yes there are a few people that have been tested uh, that have gotten a positive um uh, positive to the virus and uh, they're dealing with it and I think everything is going extremely well as long as they don't get this massive snowball of of positive tests then then that could shut them down but I think they're they're stepping it up and uh, they're even tightening it up as well so it's uh, it's uh, it's good to see I do want to ask you this as someone who played on the tour and and would have been part of some very uh, well well attended and uh, uh, you know raucous galleries and all that kind of stuff. What is it like for you watching without that that crowd reaction, the oohs and the ahs and the applause? Well, I'm watching the players, and and, and you know, and, and, and we people have playing been playing in U.S. Open qualifying that get no galleries. Like there's been situations where Curtis Strange, who's a two-time U.S. Open 
uh, champion gets paired with Phil Mickelson in, in their 36 holes in the U.S. Open qualifying. And because it's not a, a big event, no one shows up for it. And these players, you know, even though they're top names, they haven't, uh, you know, they recall in college or in the early days when this crowds weren't there um, and they have no problem with it. It's not like it's, uh, it's something that's um, uh, missing or they can't get up for now, the only thing that I find a little disturbing is for the, uh, those of us watching uh, the PGA Tour players. So in the last few weeks, when players have won, they have known they've been in that, the, that pressure situation. But because the absence of the spectator, there's been no you know, uproar. It, that seems a little weird watching it on television. But I, you know, the players and the caddies, they're having no problems with it. Yeah, I, I know because what was the one that ended in the playoff a couple of weeks ago where the uh, the one guy had the ball lip out uh, on the 18th hole, not the Travelers, whichever one was before that. But yeah, it was so weird not getting that reaction. And then the the on course interviews have the mm-hmm. you know the hockey stick like like pull to pull to do that. That was we, we, now when you were playing, did you maybe earlier in your career? And depending on, I guess, where you are in the tournament might depend on the on the television coverage. But there'd be a camera crew and a sound person pretty much walking with you the entire time, wouldn't there? Well, yes. When you like the first time I got into um, the lead of a tournament um, because it, yeah, and that camera, they run right up and get right in your face. I, it just shocked the heck out of me. I, you know, it was, it was a little disturbing, quite frankly. And, um, and it's something that you have to get used to because, you know, you've been prior to being in that position, I've, you know, watched golf on television and all of a sudden, you know, like you're on national television and it's, a, it's something that you need to, um, adapt to. But, um, once you get comfortable with it, not a problem. It's just like, you know, the spectators, it's just all the spectators out there, the thousands of them, it's like white noise. It's not a problem at all. You have bigger challenges to, to get over to, or rather than be concerned with the, with the crowds. But they do, you know, when you're playing well and you get the roar, um, you can, uh, you know, get a lot of energy from their enthusiasm. But uh, one thing I do like to see, I, I like about this, not the no spectators is we don't have those yahoos in the crowd yelling, get in the hole or mashed potatoes <laughs> or, or whatever it is that we all just despise. So uh, on that aspect, I think it's positive. Uh, you, you, play, you, you played in the Masters. Uh, it's it's going to be in November. Yep. Now I guess I know when you played in it, it was it was in April. So yep. maybe this isn't even really a fair question. But should we expect the course to be like a lot different, or is it you know Augusta? They're going to make sure it's exactly the same. Well, there it's going to appear uh, um, the same. I you know there that type of in that time of the year, it's also not going to be as uh, the temperatures will be cooler. It may be, have more moisture. I think it'll play longer and softer. But given the distances these players and, you know, like uh, what uh, Bryson DeChambeau and these players are hitting it based on the equipment, I think uh, it'll probably make the golf course um, a little easier. But uh, keep in mind, they do have these the technology under the greens where they can actually bring in the humidifiers and suck the moisture right out of them to make them 
to make them firm, and they also have um, uh, air conditioning units and, and, and radiant cooling in them to make them, um, you know, if, if they if they get too hot, which which won't happen in November. But uh, it'll be interesting. I think it'll be good. I think they'll uh, they won't miss a beat, and uh, it'll be it'll be interesting to watch the Masters play in November. That's for sure. What was the year you set the nine hole record at the U.S. Open? Was that two thousand? Yes, it was 2000, yeah, when Tiger played at Pebble Beach uh, on Sunday. I shot 30 on the front nine, and uh, that was uh, that was uh, fond memories. See, everybody should have been following you that day instead of following Tiger around winning well, by 15 shots. But you, he won by 15 shots. He dominated, but I kicked his ass for nine holes on Sunday. <laughs> How often, if ever, were you in a group with him? I've never played with Tiger. Uh, keep in mind his... When he was coming in, I was uh, uh, on my way out of the tour. But the the few years that uh, we did overlap, his locker they, they put him in alphabetical order, and oh. they're uh, right beside each other. But I never got a chance to play with him. Um, played with everyone else from Sam Snead, Arnold Palmer, uh, Jack Nicholas, but uh, never did I get a chance to play with Tiger. But one thing I do have to say about him is he's very respectful to his elders when he came out. Um, you know, a lot of these guys, whether they're they're uh, shy or naive or or, or or cocky, they 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 um, they a lot don't. But um, I must say, he was a very gracious uh, young man. Uh, you know, that was 20 years ago, and he's because he's not a young man anymore. He's 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 getting up there, isn't he? And he will be uh, obviously the defending Masters champion when we when we go into that. Richard Zokel joining us on Inside Sports. Hey, before I let you go, did you design an app or something? What's the story there? Yes. Yes, I, I am. I'm in the midst of, uh, I've designed an app. Uh, we are launching it. We're just getting all the uh, the web developer and my chief technical officer on the same page to make sure we got the configurations to get it into the app store in literally by next week. Uh, it's called MindTrack Golf, M-I-N-D-T-R-A-K Golf. And there's a website, MindTrack Golf. You can go take a look at what we're what we're doing and it's a mental game improvement app because uh we all know golf is a mental game and there's nothing out there in the market that deals with it uh and uh, even the best players in the world need um, need to get in the proper mindset in order to optimize their performance uh okay and uh, we got a question on the text line so i will ask you yep. one more uh sure. this texture uh, dave says reed can you ask Richard, who was the most underrated golfer from his era? Underrated from my era? Oh, gosh. Uh, I know that's, that's a heavy one. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that, well, you know, there were guys like Gary Hallberg who were just, they came out of, uh, you know, first-team All-American, got onto the PGA Tour without going to the qualifying school, but just, you know, whatever it was, um, you know, weren't able they weren't able to get to that next level. But there were so many in that era. I mean, I came out of the qualifying school that in let's see, fall of '81 with Azinger and Hal Sutton, and uh, you know, there was just so many good players, and I was just very, very proud to be in that era. I think that was when the, they had the right balance of talent versus equipment, and uh, but again, um, it was always great to uh, you know play when uh, when Tiger was coming out as well. Yeah. Hey, Richard, it's uh, it's great to have you on the show. If people, is it just PredatorRidge.com? What's the website again? Yeah, well, uh, PredatorRidge.com. Uh, come take a look at, at it. We are a safe community, and uh, we we get so many people from Edmonton, particularly or, you know all over Alberta, but particularly Edmonton area as well. 
And, um, you know, you, I know Albertans love uh, to recreate in BC, and we are a safe community out here. So uh, we want to see you come on out and enjoy our facilities and uh, have a summer home. Right on. Thanks for checking in tonight. We'll, we'll talk down the road. Always love chatting golf with you, Richard. Take care, man. Thanks. Thanks so much. Nice being with you. That is Richard Zokel, and all the best with his uh, app as well. He told you it's coming out soon. Mind Track is the app, uh, T R A K, for the track part of it. So, uh, yeah, I love talking golf uh, with Richard. Yeah, he shot a he shot thirty on nine holes at the two thousand U.S. Open. Uh, a little bit overshadowed though by Tiger Woods winning yet another major championship. It is seven twenty two inside sports on six thirty. Chet. So, yeah, Richard Zokel, good to catch up with him, former PGA Tour pro, now at Predator Ridge in B.C. He shot 30 on the front nine on Sunday in the 2000 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach, uh, which is a U.S. Open record at Pebble Beach. I'm just reading a story about that. He said, uh, when I came off the green on nine, my caddy said to me, do you know what you shot? And that was kind of the kiss of death. I said, I don't know what I shot and I don't care. And the caddy said, you shot 30. And Zokel said, I still don't care. <laughs> yes, if there, there's a lesson for everybody. If you're ever a caddy, don't tell your golfer what he shot on the front nine if he did really, really well. That'll that'll ruin it. Uh, but good to catch up with Richard Zokel. The NHL, we, uh, we wait for the official, official announcement. But, of course, looking very much like it will be Edmonton and Toronto for the Hub Cities whenever uh, the league does resume and finish the season. And uh, looking very much like... The uh, Edmonton, that Rogers place, will host the conference finals and the Stanley Cup finals. So they'll play down to four teams in Toronto. Pardon me, play down to two teams in Toronto, send those two teams here to join the two teams remaining in the West to finish off the postseason. Pretty exciting for Rogers place. And uh, when it ever is uh, official and we have more to discuss, we'll have it for you here on 630 Chet. Back after the break with Jed Roberts. Right, Don texting in. He says, hey, Reed, what do you think of the possibility of having fans in Rogers place for the Stanley Cup final, assuming we have few or no cases come late September, say uh, 10,000 fans in alternate seats? Well, Don, this may shock you, but I'm not a doctor or a health official. My, my gut would tell me probably unlikely. And if there were fans, I don't think it would be 10,000. I think it would be much, uh, much sparser than that. I hope maybe it could come to that. Maybe you could have a few thousand fans space them out. You'd probably have to have, uh, you know, some or all people wearing masks in that situation. Just And I'm just kind of speculating based on what's happened, uh, what's happened lately. I, I think if the NHL got fans into this tournament, they would take that as a bonus. I think their focus is on finishing this year, getting through the off season, and then hopefully having fans for the next season. Seven eight zero four nine six zero zero six three is how you can reach out by calling or texting. Well, usually this gentleman will come into studio for half an hour or an hour to do his segments. Uh, but I believe it's not just COVID nineteen that's keeping him on the phone. I believe he also finds me physically intimidating. True or false, Jed Roberts? <laughs> How's it going? Good. You're on with Reed, not Dave, by the way, but thanks for the promo on Facebook. Oh, okay. My bad. No, it's okay. Nobody ever well, Dave, me of being smart. <laughs> well, well, Dave did book you for the show, and he was filling in for me. How's life, buddy? I haven't been able to uh, see you, obviously, for a while with everything going on. 
Uh, it's been good. You know, I've just been staying home with the boys. I've got uh, two very active uh, boys. We were doing WWE simulations in the backyard today on the trampoline. And, uh, you know, I mowed the lawn before that. So it's pretty simple right now. There's not a lot of, you know, I'm not working along with uh, probably half the country right now. So I'm just um, taking it easy and taking each day as it comes and um, enjoying life, right? I mean, it's a tough time, right? But you got to take the good, right? You got to figure out uh, silver lining and all of this. And for, for me, it's been, I've gotten to spend a lot more time with the family. And um, I figured out that my sons are actually pretty cool people. Like I had a really con- really good conversation with my youngest one last night. Uh, he asked me um, a lot of really interesting questions last night. So I, I had to uh, be on my toes. So this parenting thing isn't an easy gig. <laughs> Well, that's good to hear, though, that there's some bonding going on and some fun as well. Now, were you involved in the WWE simulations or were you more of an observer or commentator? You know what I'm doing? I'm trying to build them up, build their confidence up, and then I'm going to destroy them. So I'm letting them go at each other. And then once they get really confident, then I'm going to get on there and then just, you know, then I'll have to spend about two more weeks trying to build them back up again. So, you know, small baby steps, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's great. What, what, and, I, and I know, uh, I can't remember if one or both of your kids played football or is playing yeah, football. What, last year. Yeah, they both what's played the, the Northeast uh, Seahawks last, uh, last year. They had a really good time. Do we know the status of minor football in Edmonton yet for this year? Well, you know what? Like, I know the Seahawks are looking to try to start practicing next week. Um, it just seems like this whole COVID thing is like you got to take it day by day. But as of today, you know, yeah, we're planning on trying to get them out there to play some football. But, you know, you never know what you're going to wake up to the next day in the news about, you know, this place closing and that place closing and the numbers going up or the numbers going down. So um, I, I, we're kind of hoping that it works out because, uh, you know, I've – my kids are both uh, gaining a little bit of weight along with me. And, you know, we like to get out and get uh, physically active. And football is a great way to do it because you're having fun. You don't really think about it. So um, I'm hoping to coach this year, too. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see. As, as of now, I'm planning to get out there next week and, um, you know, have the kids play football and I'll coach them. What was your playing weight and was it ever a struggle to maintain it? You know what? No, because when I came up, I came up as a linebacker in 1990. I was 230. And uh, 91, I came back for training camp, and they just looked at me and said, we're going to put you at D-line. And I was like, what? Because I'd never really lined up as a D-lineman, so I was probably the only 230-pound D-lineman in the entire league at that point. And they said, not only that, but we're going to put you in nose guard. So I was taking double teams, and so, yeah, I, I tried to figure out a good balance between, you know, playing on the D-line and then also playing special teams, because that was always my forte, so... My playing weight usually kind of went between 245 and 255, 260. Uh, I was a lot quicker at 245, obviously, but I took a bigger beating at that weight. So I started at 230. I ended my career at about 295. I actually really liked being bigger because I could throw people around, but uh, you sacrifice a lot of speed when you do that. Did you say you were up to 295 by the end of your career? Yeah, my last year. I was 295. I actually I felt great. I, I broke my leg. Actually... What's today? It's July 2nd. Yep. Uh, 18 years ago, right about now, I broke my leg and ended my career after 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you, you've told that story. Is that the one? Was it was Ricky kind of was like, uh-oh, or who was it? It was Jason, and he was um, – that was Ricky's first year, right? Ricky was on the bench. Jason uh, 
bobbled a point after attempt, and uh, I think it was right, the first right. drive of the third period, third quarter. Sorry, when I played hockey here, um, and he uh, yelled fire. But of course, I'm deaf, so I didn't hear the fire call. And what a fire call means is that anybody who's eligible as a receiver could could run a route, and hopefully Jason might you know find me and throw the ball to me. But I couldn't hear the fire call, so I was still engaged with the blocker. And uh, Jason got tried to run. I looked back and I noticed that he had because I used to do a timing thing because I was hearing impaired, right? So I couldn't hear the snap. I went by the snap of the ball, like movement. And then I always had this timing where it was like, okay, one, two, bang, the ball should be away. When the ball wasn't away, I looked back to see what was going on. And Jason was running toward me and he had two big D linemen behind him. And they tackled Jason into me and they fell into the back of my legs and my right ankle went like dry kindling on a cold winter day. And, um, oh. I felt everybody, I actually thought they, my knee went because it started to, like my medial collateral felt like a little straining. Then I felt a pop and it didn't hurt. It was just like, it was just kind of just matter of fact, right? And then um, everybody got up and I got up and I was on one foot and, I, and my foot was backwards because I had, to, the only thing that saved my foot, I think, was the fact that I had a spat over my shoe. I don't, I think that if I would have had the, if I wouldn't have put tape over the top of my shoe, I might have lost my foot that night. So, Jeez, the that's surgeon awful. wasn't sure I was going to fix it because the tibia broke in like three or four pieces, and he couldn't <sighs> use the screw the way it was broken because it was, you know. So he just basically set it. He put a transverse screw through the ankle and, and just basically prayed that it would hold together, and it did. Um, I went in after about two years later and had it, had them shave some of the tibia off. But uh, and you well, you said it didn't hurt that much. Not really, not at first, but then after about, because I got up and I had this weird thing about, like, I don't want to be, if I get hurt, I'm not, because when I ruptured my Achilles in 98, I just hopped off the field and nobody knew I got hurt. Right. And then 2002, when I did that with my foot, my foot was like dangling around. I tried to hop off the field and there was a ref behind me going, Jed, Jed, you got to get down. You got to go down. Right? He goes, he's my foot, like, you know. You're, you're killing me here. And I said, think about how I feel. It's my foot, you know. <laughs> he laughed. And then he goes, we got to get you an ambulance right away. And I said, I can take a cab. It's really expensive. They're going to send me a bill. And he said, don't be ridiculous. So they got me all set up and put me in the ambulance. And then sure enough, two weeks later, they sent me a bill for 300 bucks. So, Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> the team paid it, of course, but I still got sent the bill. I was right. You know? Oh, so they said it to the individual, but the team did intervene. Yeah, okay. the team did pay. I had to physically like crutch into the office and hand them the actual bill. But yeah. <laughs> Jim <laughs> Roberts joining us tonight. On, uh, well, you've told portions of that injury story before. That had a little extra flavor to it. So thank you for uh, for, for giving us that. that. Are, are, you're still the you're still the team record for. Uh, I think you have the franchise record for career special teams tackles, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I've got like 163, and then I've I've got the yeah, add playoffs to it. It goes up to about 100, which is close to 180. But. Um, for a bigger so, guy, I suppose that's kind of unusual because uh, you don't expect big guys like defensive linemen and offensive linemen running down on the field. So that was kind of what was sort of cool about it was that there's something terrifying about a guy that's a lot bigger running downfield as the arrow on kickoff and breaking up wedges and stuff. And That's a bit of a product of bygone era because they don't allow more than three people to group up on the kickoff return anymore. So the game's changed quite a bit, but that's something I'm quite proud of, you know, 
Okay, so where where my face thinking about that? Where where would where would you line up? Was it was it primary kick coverage or punt coverage? Yeah, kickoff and punt. On kickoff, I would be right next to Sean Fleming. He would tee the ball up, and I was the guy right next to it. So basically, what my job was is I was the arrow, and everybody formed their lanes off of me. And so I would go straight to the ball, and everybody else would either bracket with their inside shoulder, whether they're on the right side, they bracket with their left shoulder. They're on the left side, they bracket with their right shoulder. So it was always deep, kick off deep right. So I didn't have to go oh. right and left. I just went straight. So. <laughs> <laughs> now, on, on punts, though, mm-hmm. do you not also have to rely on Sean putting the ball where he says he's going to put it so the yeah, guy's you know, Sean catching was more it? With- of a, Sean had a higher um, trajectory on his ball and higher, uh, longer hang time because he had a very strong leg. And um, the punter that really I had a really good success with was Glenn Harper because he was directional with punter and he could punt the ball wherever he wanted um if the coach told him to put the ball between you know the numbers and the sideline he would do that you know and and, uh if we were on our own 40 or our 35 you could guarantee that that or glenn would put it right in there but inside the 20 on the opposing side and that there's a real um that's a real art like there's not a a lot of guys who could do that you know then glenn would sacrifice uh distance Replacement, whereas Sean would just kind of kick the hell out of it, and you wouldn't really know where it was going. And this was before you have to you have to keep in mind this was before they put the rules in place about not kicking out of bounds. Right. Um, everybody we played always kicked the ball out of bounds because they didn't want Gizmo to embarrass them. And uh, we never really did that. We just tried to pin it between the numbers and the sideline, and, and we had great success. And I always knew where the ball was going to be because Glenn was so good at what he did. With Sean, it was a bit more of a guessing game because he had a powerful leg and. You know, he he might throw it. I've seen him put it over the uh, speaker at Commonwealth Stadium, which is insane when you think about it, because that's really high. But when it goes up that high, it hangs up forever. It's both a blessing and a curse, because you run down there as a cover guy, and you're ready to make the tackle, but you're waiting for the ball to come out, and then gives them the time to catch up to you and angle their blocks on you. So, was, Or the guy uh, sucks you into a no-yards penalty. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, I, we all know about, we all hear the stories about the Americans who come up and don't know about mill yards and clean somebody's clock out and hit them in the throat and stuff. And then they put them on the first plane out. Um, you really got to be paying attention when you're in there about the rules and stuff like that because there are a lot of differences between the leagues. So you, you would have played against Pinball. Was he the slipperiest guy to try to tackle on a return? Pinball ran as fast sideways as he did forward, you know, and he could do things, uh, he could stop and start like gizmo was a guy that he took a couple steps and he got going it took him a couple steps to get going pinball was the opposite like pinball as soon as he got that ball he was going but he was also five three and about 135 so he was a little water bug man like he uh you couldn't try to take him out with a, with a big shot you just had to kind of grab him and for some reason i did i had pretty good success with pinball i wasn't trying to kill him i was just going to try to get my hands on him, you know and and a lot of that was just about knowing where your help was, right? So I was the guy on the left side on punt for many years, so I would always look for whoever our center was and whoever played our right guard position and try to bracket and try to pin, you know, squeeze them over to my help. And then while those guys were distracting pinball, I'd grab them. Okay. You talked about, you and I talked about this, Reed. There's, there's also that. Um, the, the unknown variable where, like, if, even if you don't make the tackle, if you jump up and throw your arms up at the, at the press box, they might give you the tackle. And I think I probably got about 30 tackles that way. So. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good so point because there's a, a point. Right? 
So there's a pile of guys. Yeah, that, like that's what Rob Brown always says. If if you're uh, an offensive or if you're around the net in hockey and you think it might have crossed the line, just start celebrating and pointing, and the ref might give it to you. Well, Though they have no replay now. Replay. There was no instant <laughs> replay, so it wasn't like they could go back and like you know parse right. it through there with a fine tooth comb. If you put your arms up, they're going to give it to you. So, and that's a veteran move, man. Like you can't. That, that's what experience gets you. <laughs> Jed Roberts, former Edmonton Eskimo, joining us tonight on Inside Sports. Always fun to have him on the show. So, what do you what are you thinking, man? It, it's it like it's tough times for everybody. Uh, the CFL would have been, uh, I mean, uh, pretty much a month in already, or I guess would have been week four coming up, and we don't know even if we're going to get to to week one. I mean, as a former player, a guy who loves the league, what are you thinking here? Would you is an eight to ten game season worth it for you? Is it better try to try to reset for next year? Oh, I, I absolutely think it's worth it, but I, I don't know how that works, right? Like, and, and the thing is, I'm watching the NHL to see what they're doing because I think, and I agree, I don't know who said this, but somebody was talking about it online and social media about if the NHL has success with it, especially particularly because it's in Canada, right? You're talking Edmonton, Toronto, the rumor is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you've already got the impetus in place. You've got this structure, right? So if they can do that hub sub, hub uh, hub city model, then you know, I can't, why can't the CFL do the same thing in the same cities, right? Or maybe, you know, fed up in Winnipeg and Saskatchewan and, and have at it, right? I mean, the only thing about an eight-game, ten-game season is you have to come out of the gate. Like, you can't. In the CFL, it's two different seasons, right? It's summer and winter. So you're basically looking at the start of the winter season there to get started up in September. So it will be interesting to see what happens for sure, but I think it can be done. Uh, the CFO is a gate-driven league. By that, I mean they really rely heavily on the gate receipts, people coming in, busting the streets. They do have that TV contract with TSN, and I'm sure that they're probably pretty curious to see what's going to happen. I mean, that's, you know, they pay, they're paying the league the money, so the league has to come up with something. And then there's the matter of getting the American players up here. It's going to be interesting to see. I, I'm really hoping they can pull it off, but at the end of the day, like I said at the beginning of this interview, it's just day by day right now. You really can't plan too far ahead for anything. So, what would have you had? Uh, what would have the challenges been for you staying in shape? Like you would have been getting into shape for the middle of May, and now you're waiting. Like, what have you tried to maybe tail back and then reach a, another peak once you knew the, well, you the date what? you had to report? You know what? It's, the game has changed so much. Like back from when I played, nowadays guys are in shape year round, and there's no. Mm-hmm to be out of shape like if you're out of shape then you're just not being professional so yeah you can take your your program and, and maybe tweak it and you know if guys are trying to come in at a certain uh, level I mean yeah sure you can you can do that but it really becomes all about maintenance and keeping keeping what you got and being ready to go when they call the game the NFL is going with two play two preseason games I think yep um you know, I don't even know if the CFL can do that. Like the CFL would just have to hit the ground running, and then they'll take they'll take the guys they have and, and play. I honestly think preseason is a waste of time. Like I think you really should just bring your guys in and say and turn them loose. Preseason in the NFL is way it's far too long. Like it's it's just a lot of people get hurt. It's unnecessary. In the CFL, you've got the short rosters. You you pretty much know who you're going with. You might need one game to kind of tweak and and do this things here and there, but. Inevitably, invariably, you get guys getting hurt, and that's what leads to the opportunities. Because the CFL, they have their training camps since June, and uh, it doesn't really get that hot up here. And the short, the, the short camps are like three weeks. And it's usually the injuries that lead to opportunities for the young guys. And I'm sure if the brass had their way, they would just go with the guys they thought they had in mind and 
pad their practice roster and kind of plug and play. But uh, I think the CFL is a lot more adaptable that way. So I think that if any league could do it, the CFL can because they've always had to be adaptable. They've, you know, we, we put teams in the in the states for heaven's sakes, and you know that was an interesting experience. I, I lived through that. I, I had the time of my life in the U.S., and I'm, I'm confident that if the CFL can can get past this finger pointing thing, then they can work together. They can pull it off. Yeah, well, and I hear you about the preseason in the CFL. Like it used to be, the starters played a game. Now sometimes they barely play a quarter. Yeah, and so it, it's it, like it really if they're is. ready, any like why? Yeah, there's no point to it. I mean, I get it. You know, the coaches want to see this, but they actually don't. They put their vanilla system in, and they want to see if these guys can perform in game time, game type situations. You can do that in the in the practice simulation if you want to. I don't know. I mean. I've never been a big fan of training camp. I'm, a, I'm an ex-player. So you probably get a different answer from somebody else who's coaching or whatever because they <laughs> want to get there at times. But I, I always just, like, camp is stupid. And I, toward the end of my career, I purposely missed camp and would come in after. Because guys would be angry with me. Like, how do you do that? I'm like, I'm smarter than you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, you definitely are an intelligent young man, Jet, and you're always a great guest on this program. We always appreciate the passion and the stories. Uh, you know, glad the family's doing well and uh, you're keeping a positive attitude through all this course we're going to keep again and hopefully uh, next time we do this it's in studio right buddy yes sir sorry about the uh, gabe hamill thing man i mean i i i, I, I do know <laughs> i was talking to you i just had a brain brain I, I, there so <laughs> i'm totally just giving you a hard time it is all good yeah. take care buddy all right i love you Ray. take care buddy right on i love you back that is jed roberts on inside sports on 6 30 chat to 8 o'clock. Charles Adler will take over the hosting responsibilities after the 8 o'clock news. Bob Stoffer has Oilers now from noon to 2 tomorrow. I'll be back with Inside Sports from 6 to 8. We will continue to monitor the Hub City decision in the NHL. I think we know which way that decision is uh, going to go, that it will be Edmonton and Toronto, but players still voting on uh, the return to play and on some other collective bargaining agreement issues. The Toronto Blue Jays got federal clearance to hold summer camp north of the border this afternoon and planning to play their games, or sorry, where the club will play games this season still being decided. Major League Baseball, uh, what are we, about three weeks away from first pitch? And uh, as uh, I was talking about with Rob Brown, some guys just are going to opt out of the season. I I should mention the NHL is giving that players, uh, giving their players, that option as well. Uh, John Shannon, who was on the show the other night, tweeted yesterday, also expecting that any phase three, four agreement between the sides will include players' ability to opt out of the summer tournament. They can just say, I'm not playing. Don't need a reason. Any player can opt out for any reason or for no reason. I don't know how many players would do that. You do have a chance to win the Stanley Cup, but you never know with uh, health or family concerns if someone in the NHL uh, might decide it's not in their best interests or the best interests of their loved ones to play. But uh, another little tidbit there to add to the pile of information about this. Big thanks to Cody Jansen, our studio operator back at the 630 Chet Broadcasting Compound. Dave Campbell is the producer of Inside Sports. You can get more on 630Chet.com, globalnews.ca. I will rejoin you tomorrow night. Thank you for your participation in the program. Take care. 630 Chet Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chet.